As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by AirTech Pressure Monitoring Systems. The AirTech system is the Cadillac of tire pressure gauges. That's why my wife and I use it ourselves, and we're a proud distributor. In addition, this podcast is brought to you free courtesy of Racing RVs. We realize that not everyone is in the market for a new or used RV, but if and when that day comes, support the people that support Sportsman Drag Racing. That's Racing RVs. Welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. Introducing your hosts, the multi-time world champion, Cool Hand Luke Bogacki, and the golden voice of drag racing, Big Jed, Jared Pennington. Welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. Thank you for finding us wherever you find your podcast and allowing us to be a small part of your day. The Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast will be a weekly review of what's happening or what has happened in sportsman racing. Luke and I will be talking about all of the hottest topics, drivers, and events in racing today. Luke, what's going on, bud? I got a cold, Jed, and I'm a wuss when I'm sick. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and my wife will be the first to tell you that. So I, I'm, you know, I usually kind of carry this thing, but uh, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really going to depend on you today. I don't feel like I'm bringing the normal energy. Well, I'm here for you, bud. Whatever you need, you just let me know. That's what um, I like to hear. Hope so. you feel better soon. <laughs> What's new with you? Oh man, same old, same old. Uh, I'm just getting my little S10 ready to to go racing next month. I won't quite have the Nova ready when I debut at the Super Sevens in Montgomery. So. I'm going to take Optimus Dime. We're going to have a good time popping wheelies and uh, trying to build my racing schedule. Um, that's uh, that's always a challenge, trying to figure that out throughout the year, plan it as well as I can. And, of course, we got uh, JJ's basketball team, so we got a lot happening, practices and games and racing stuff, all that. Trying to work it in the schedule is pretty busy right now. 
about you? How is that high-powered offense doing? Man, we're really, really bad. We're, we're struggling. Our mainest point guard that was the best in the league moved up to play with his 12-year-old brother because he was running circles around the, the 10 and 11-year-olds. So we lost him, and our next point guard just broke his arm. So hopefully that's not too bad on him and his family. But um, we're, we're left without a point guard, brother. And you're a basketball fan, so you know what that means. That's, that's trouble at any age, especially this one. Yeah, I would say that's even more critical at uh – at that level yeah pretty much everybody on the on the team can dribble when you're at a certain age but uh, that's not really the case at 11 year olds yeah speaking of hoops man i, I jinxed my salukis last week and i, I don't want to i don't want to <laughs> turn this into the missouri valley conference podcast but uh <laughs> I, I boys had two games since our, our last podcast the first we were on the road at drake up Five with 18 seconds to go. Managed to lose that one. Oh, my goodness. That's hard to do. And then we had a home game Saturday night against Northern Iowa, who's you know kind of the class of our league outside oh, yeah. of Wichita State, or has been for several years. But they're a little down this year, and it was a very winnable game. Uh, our Salukis were up 12 with eight minutes to go. Managed to pour in three more points in the final eight minutes to lose by one. So oh. while we have shown some promise, I guess the the getter closer is working great. The finisher upper, we just haven't quite got the uh, experience and uh, and uh, gumption to pull that off yet. And they're at Wichita State tonight, so that'll oh. be in the books by the time that you guys read this. Uh, we are seventeen and a half point underdogs. So I'm not going to come on here and proclaim victory by any means. But if if I was a betting man, which I'm not. I would take the dogs and the points. I have confidence that they'll be able to keep it a little closer than that. Wow. But, uh, yeah, yeah. At, at the Shockers' home court. Yeah, at, at the Roundhouse. I, I you're calling for the cover. I have a feeling we're going to represent well, although I'm, I'm not going to go out and say that we're going to pull off the victory. That game Saturday night was actually our uh, my wife and I's anniversary date, so bless her heart for uh, putting up with me for the last five years. That's... Uh, Strong awesome. woman right there. And, Five uh, year anniversary. Yeah, yeah, it went it went quick. So happy uh, anniversary. Yeah, we've in our five years we've we've been through a lot together. Um, highs and lows both. But uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say it was the best five years of my life. So uh, oh, happy no anniversary doubt. to my sweetie. But uh, happy anniversary, Jess. And beyond that, man, I actually on uh, I spent Sunday, which would be the day after our anniversary, in the shop. And worked really on the Vega for the first time. I I don't know. I, I think I mentioned it on our episode triple zero on our about us. My my plans for the Vega. It's getting 2017 off. And yep. uh, I had been saying that for about two months and hadn't really acted on that at all, other than to jack it up. And I think I took the transmission out to take the PT. There's no turning back now. Everything she's destroyed. Yeah, from the foot box forward is uh, is ready to go to the powder coater. Like there is nothing on there and i don't know that don hardy was the last person to see that car without the dash in it my car was built by don hardy in 1974 but i can tell you the dash hadn't been out in the last 13 years and it's laying in the shop floor so yeah we've uh we've made some headway that's uh that's awesome uh so a car built in 1974 not quite built like they build them today not any less quality or anything but they're just built a little different how 
How difficult was that dash to get out? Not bad at all. If I had realized how simple it was, I wouldn't have laid up under it wiring it. I'll tell you that much. Uh, really? Was, once you take the windshield out, not a big deal. Cool. The windshield did have to come out. So. Don was ahead of his time. Then, well, <laughs> you could look at that car and there's no doubt about that. It's uh, Which it's been front half, back half, mid half at some point in the last 43 years. But, uh, but now it's... Uh, I'm not going to say it's a it's a work of engineering marvel, but it's a it's a pretty good little car for what it is. Yeah, it's it's been good to you. So looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Are you? I don't want to put you on the spot here by any means. Are you gonna Are you gonna document this this build? Yeah, I've been meaning to do that. I, I, I'm going to blog about it. I'll probably tie it in through thisisbracketracing.com somehow. I'd say okay. look for that in the next month. Certainly, that's. Uh, it's on my cool. list, but it hasn't been towards the top of it. But yeah, absolutely. And I want to give some history to the car because it's got a, a pretty cool history up to this point, And I just hope to add to that going forward. Okay, looking forward to that. So, on, so, the, uh, on the race scene, uh, what do we got for news and notes this week, Big Jeff? Well, I don't think it's any secret at this point that um, another racetrack received some tornado damage. I think uh, anybody with a Facebook page that's got racing friends has seen that South Georgia Motorsports Park uh, received some tornado damage uh, just the other day, a couple of days ago, in the tornadoes and the bad storms that rolled through the the southern part of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. Um, but could have been a lot worse i'm sure you saw that yourself yeah i did the pictures look kind of jarring but from what i understood it was just the suites atop the grandstands which i mean that's obviously enough damage but given the extent of the the damage and injuries and fatalities in that area the the racetrack is probably the least of anyone's concerns from what i understood they're actually going to have things back up and running for uh, lights out their next big event so uh, yeah thoughts and, and prayers out to everybody in that area especially those that were affected personally and then obviously on a racing end um thinking about those guys trying to uh, get everything order down there in order down there at uh, at sgmp yeah I, I believe they've got uh, most of that cleanup already done with the help of some volunteers and uh, a lot of staff and some good equipment down there so i think they've already got it pointed in the right direction i'm sure they're going to come out well on the other side Never surprising uh, to see how the racing community comes together. That's cool. No, no, they're excellent. Outside of that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about it on last week's show, but the All-State Challenge has been released uh, by Rick Cummings and Galen Rollison and the Great American Bracket Race. And this thing, man, you know, I thought the podcast got a lot of attention, but it's 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 continuing with uh, the release of this, this deal at the Great American Bracket Race. It's looking really good so far yeah pretty exciting i know uh, we talked about it a little bit last week but just to to see our idea i guess kind of come to fruition and of course to be involved with it i know you're the the team captain for uh, your crimson tide down there and uh, yeah. as am i for illinois so that's exciting particularly for me knowing that i'll be involved in the race um, it's also a little bit daunting as the team captain obviously we select our uh, representatives so i think that that's a pretty significant responsibility as well but it's one that i look forward to yeah i'm looking forward to that as well um you know i, I feel like given our uh, proximity to the event that my team that i picked on the show will probably be in attendance um if not 100 percent, very near it so you know it's uh, be interesting for me to 
to weave through that, but you know, it'd be hard to to not pick the people that I chose as original team members. So if they're all going, you know, it could get very interesting. Yeah, my thoughts are kind of the same way. Uh, I haven't thought of anybody that I would rather have on the team. I'm not sure like the folks will be able to make it because I know there's a divisional event in Iowa that weekend. I'm gonna do my best mm. to talk them into it. But uh, and then I've I've got to select a, a female driver, which is a bit of a conflict and interest for me because I think I want to select my wife, and I really can't <laughs> think of anybody that I would take over her. But I don't want to be a complete homer, and uh, at the same time, I don't want to rob her of an opportunity. So I'm not real sure at this point what to what to do there. But I haven't been confronted as of yet with any other options. So uh, I'm sure just well, saying that will probably bring some great female competitors out of the woodwork to say that they want to be part of team illinois so we'll see how that i'm goes. sure it will but uh, if i could offer any advice um jessica is a is a very good racer regardless of her gender and she's a win light waiting to happen in any match and uh, she lives in the same house as you and she birthed your child so if you would take those things into consideration when you're picking it may help you just a little bit i agree with that on all counts so i, I appreciate that yeah good luck with that <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's it's going to be very exciting and um, uh, really excited that Britt and Galen uh, is bringing this thing to fruition and uh, excited to see that uh, it's getting a lot of traction with the racers. It should be should be really cool. Outside of that, um, we've been finalizing a couple of details for the BT World Footbrake Challenge number 11. Yeah, what you guys got new and exciting there? Well, not a whole lot new, but it's always exciting. You know, it's um, going to remain the same format, 10000 Friday and Sunday, 20000 a win on Saturday. And it'll be July the 6th through the 9th at uh, Bristol Dragway once again. So looking forward to that. And there'll be some details on the Southern Footbrake Challenge coming out here in a couple of months as well. But another uh, another good time at the BTWFC. Just waiting on you footbreakers. Yeah, always is. That uh, that's uh, one that I haven't been able to attend personally in a couple of years. But every time I go, other than just getting my tail kicked, I always want to come back. So good crowd, and good event, great facilities. You staged in the in the final at the at the first WFC ever, and it was for fifty grand on saturday actually sunday morning wasn't it so i did we'll have to tell that story at some point that i still look back on that as the like not maybe the crowning achievement but a a life-changing day in my racing career just because of what that money meant to me at that time that was uh that was a big big deal of course scotty richardson whooped my butt because he's (laughs) scotty richardson and i'm not and it was a fifty thousand dollar final and i don't win those but it was uh, it was still one of my greatest uh memories without question uh, not a lot of guys have staged uh, for the opportunity to to actually win fifty on the top and on the bottom. You're uh, you're in elite company there, my friend. So that was cool to to get to do that for Footbreakers. Um, but you know, it was definitely cool to see you competing for it and almost pulled it off. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your story on that as well. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, for today's show, our our topic so to speak is um is on more on the local level like we want to we want to discuss the the state of local bracket racing today and in addition to obviously jed you and i come at this from a couple of different viewpoints you know both as racers who started obviously at the local level and as um 
promoters that have been on the other side of the pay window. So while we haven't necessarily run a uh, a lot of local bracket races on our own, I think we've got a better idea of what the track owner, operator, manager is dealing with in addition to the racers. So, And then oh, yeah. beyond our discussion, we'll kind of cap this episode, an interview with Bill Bader, the president and co-owner at Summit Motorsports Park, and get some of his insights as well. And we'll talk about him a little bit as we go on. But the state of local bracket racing in general, Jed, um, like where do you want to begin here? I feel like it's it's hurting in some ways. What are your thoughts? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. Um, obviously, none of us would, if we've reached any kind of status or whatever, whatever you want to call it, none of us would be where we are had it not been for local bracket racing. So, you know, I lived it through the mid to late 80s, all through the 90s into the 2000s. And, you know, I've seen it at its peak and now I'm seeing it at a hurtful low. It's painful for me to see what's happening in my local scene we have great facilities here with very genuine wonderful caring owners and operators but it is just that the task of getting people interested and getting them to to commit to the racetrack with the the commitment that we used to make back in its heyday you know, you're going to be there every week regardless. If there's a chance of rain, you didn't even know it because you didn't have a cell phone and, you know, you just, you went anyway. Now, with all the factors involved in trying to get people to the racetrack and the challenges these track owners are facing, I mean, it's hurting and it's painful for me to see because when I'm not out uh, chasing the, the money or fame or whatever, I, I go to the racetrack every week at home and, uh, you know, I want them I want these tracks to thrive, but it's struggling. Yeah, I don't want to paint like a completely bleak picture because it's not nationwide. There are pockets in the country, and certainly there are facilities in which the bracket program is continuing to thrive. And obviously there are places where it's dying. Um, But I think on the whole, um, local bracket racing is certainly down. Um, like I say, that doesn't encompass every single facility in every pocket of the country, but I would say on the whole that it's, uh, it's trending in the wrong direction. Yeah. Why? I, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but in my mind, the, the main ones are the cost associated with competition um, and to some extent the option of attending some of the, the bigger dollar events and especially now that more of them pop up. What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the cost is um, as an all-time high, and, you know, it's it's very difficult with with all the things that race car drivers, families, whatever, have available to do on a Saturday night. It's very difficult to make the decision to, to drop 100 bucks or 125 bucks, whatever it's costing you to go to the local race, with the opportunity to win – 700 800 whatever it is that that risk versus reward isn't worth it to a lot of people and you know the competition today is the toughest it's ever been and a lot of people just aren't built for a highly competitive environment they just it doesn't get their juices flowing so you take what it's going to cost me and i'm going to go out there and you know uh, 
you know, you got X racer there again tonight and he's probably going to win or he's going to be right in the middle of it or I'm going to have to race him. I can't beat him. Some people just aren't up for the challenge given the amount of money that it cost them to go do it. So, uh, you know, and I think they still have the disposable income. I just think maybe they aren't willing to to spend it for what you're going to face when you get to the racetrack. I could be wrong, but it's just an opinion. In my mind, the, the larger issue in terms of cost isn't so much the the entry fees, the buybacks, the, the actual cost of competition, because in large part, like that hasn't changed a ton over the course of the last decade, two decades maybe, and neither have the purses um, for the most part. I, I think what's a detriment is the cost of competition in general, like the, the cost, the rising cost of the race cars, the race fuel, the technology and equipment and things like that, particularly in the electronics classes. And on one hand, the like the purses have not risen with that cost, but I don't think that that's necessarily the answer. And this is something that, that Bill Bader and I, when we get to that interview, that's actually an interview that I recorded yesterday, so I may, I'll reference it a couple of times without trying to just spoil it. But there was something that he emphasized too. Like, I don't know that there's much that we can do to rein in the costs of competition at this point. Like, the all of the technologies out there, like, I don't think you can turn back, specifically no. in the top bulb classes. The other reason that I, I, or the other big factor that I think is hurting local bracket racing to some extent is, or at least that people talk about, is so many other options with the with the bigger buck races popping up everywhere. Not necessarily the the huge mega $50,000 to win events, but it seems like at least in certain parts of the country, like there's a five grander every weekend, you know, within a couple hours of home, like that makes it hard for a lot of guys on the top to justify staying home and racing for 800 bucks and the car can't show that. But what that, like my, and I've said this before on one of the previous podcasts, it's like arguing the chicken versus the egg. Like are those, are the local events the the weekly program struggling because of the added options you know because of those bigger races are available or did those bigger races pop up because the local programs weren't a viable option you know what i mean i think it's oh, yeah. a little bit of both but i th- what i want to get back to a little bit is let's backtrack just a little bit why because you could make the argument like it's hard to say bracket racing is dead or bracket racing is dying. Like, it's impossible to say that when you've got events throughout the season that'll have five, six hundred cars on the ground. You know, like the, the million dollar race is obviously huge. The the spring fling races. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, and it's not just those mega events. The the races that, uh, that the loose rocker guys are putting on are huge. Your events have a great turnout. My events have a good turnout. Um, so it's not like bracket racing is dying. Like, it's, you could look at it just at that level and say it's healthier than ever but yep. the issue is the feeder system and why that's so important is because like that's where there at least in my eyes it's so important like that's where you and I started oh yeah and mm-hmm. i don't think anybody's first event is going to be certainly not a $50,000 to win race 
probably not a $5,000 win race. Like there, if there is that feeder system isn't in place to get new people involved and give them an opportunity to race and learn without spending a ton of money, without getting their teeth kicked in every other week, then I'm not, obviously the sport is very healthy right now or our niche in the sport is, but without that feeder system, where are we going to be in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, when when George Howard passed, uh, I got to talk about an opportunity that I got to work with uh, novice racers at the B&M series and teach them quickly on Sunday morning. Then they got in their street car and went out Sunday morning before the action started and actually raced till we got a winner. And there's nothing like that, to my knowledge, going on at, at the local tracks anywhere within reason of me. Don't know how you get that done again but if you can get 20 people to show up on thursday night and do it you know if you get two of those if you get 10 percent of those to roll into your program with some consistency you know it's got to help but the feeder system is there's no there's nothing driving them to race with us so uh, we we definitely got to figure out a way to get some more people involved because the testing tunes are loaded with cars but we're not pushing them to want to come race on Saturday night. Right. You know, I see a lot of that too. And I think the part of the the difficulty again comes back to the cost associated with racing and how expensive some of these race vehicles have become. And to some extent, like I've said before, that the purses offered in local racing weeds that out to some extent like you don't have a lot of hundred thousand dollar race cars show up to try to win eight hundred or a thousand bucks on a saturday night so on one hand that's good because the local racer that is a complete hobbyist that maybe doesn't have a bunch of money tied up in his in his operation like he still feels more competitive at that level because he's not taking on that massive um hundred thousand dollar race car whatever the case may be but we're running out of those lower level or lower lower priced hobbyists and and you obviously you can't go on if there's 10 of them showing up on a regular saturday night so but but with that being said like i i feel like to some extent that kind of polices itself like if the local tracks paid more more people would show up but again like i don't think that's the answer and you can't expect the local track operator that's getting 12 cars to race for 800 bucks to say you know what let's pay three grand like it doesn't make a lot of sense no um so particularly in the top bowl classes like i don't know that there's a ton of future at the local level but where i think tracks can really capitalize and and again this was something that that Bill Bader discussed a little bit in our interview is really focusing an effort not only on your entry level classes but also on the the bottom bulb category the the foot brake no box category and what they do at Norwalk with that is it's a no box class because that part of the country that's kind of the norm but obviously you can't have a delay box you can't have a data logger of any sort and I believe they have some type of rule against digital ignitions and obviously they're doing that in an effort to to create parity to some extent but what it has the the adverse and also intended effect of minimizing costs and you can still spend as much money as you want on your race car but it's like 
to make it look cool or to run a little faster. You know what I mean? It's not stuff that you feel like you have to scrimmage sure. on to be competitive. And I think that that is really going to be key for the sport as a whole going forward. What are, oh, yeah. I couldn't agree more. You know, as far as the racetracks and what they pay, I hear it. You hear it. It's on Facebook. It's the guys talking in the lanes. I, I'm not going there. They don't pay nothing. I'm not. Well, you know, it's a business, and none of us would make the, the conscious decision to pay out more than we're capable of bringing in. And and quite honestly, if you're running a business where you're paying out everything you're bringing in, that's bad business. And I don't think any of us would make that decision either. So, you know, we, we need to, just like your video said, we need to try to find ways to help the track owners you you may have some track owners been doing it 40 years and they're maybe stuck old school you might have some's been doing it 40 days and they they need help either way offering suggestions and trying to find ways to to help them with their program and not that's not telling them how bad it sucks that's telling them what you think they could do to help themselves and their their customers civilly and you know trying to do it peacefully instead of bashing them on facebook or the internet or whatever so you know i think the track owners they got to guarantee something I, I think it's a mistake for the the tracks that say well just come on out and if we get 10 we'll pay this if we get 20 we'll pay this you know guarantee something racers need to know what they're racing for um in today's times that's just how we work but obviously don't make it painful on yourself and uh, try to try to establish that and that foundation and build up from there and as far as your comments on the bottom bulb i mean i'm a that's me i'm a i'm a bottom bulb guy i'm a foot brake racer but bottom bulb racing is a is a geographic conundrum it's it is so different in regions all regions of the country that it's it's very difficult for a guy that lives where i live you drive an hour north or an hour and a half north and they're wanting to no box race. You drive uh, an hour south, they're wanting a no box race. Yet right in my general area where it's, you know, 30, 40 minutes to a couple, two or three tracks, it's foot brake only. So you get a little confused about uh, racers think they need to no box race if they're if they're allowing it because they think the trans brakes are an advantage and you get over on the east coast and they don't allow air shifters and it's foot brake only you get to norwalk it's no box with air shifters and some bad dudes at that so not a lot of people going to travel into that area and then you got texas which has been tradition or i say texas division four traditionally foot brake now they're letting some trans brakes in so you know i i don't know i don't know how we get some uniformity to the bottom bulb rules but that would help that class tremendously yeah um, i agree and if i was like the the overseer of bottom bulb racing like nationwide uh, just from a standpoint of what we talked about before and in an effort to keep costs down I would make it foot brake across the board. Not, and you're thinking, well, that's silly, like, because uh, your foot brake, the difference between a foot brake car and a no box car is a trans brake valve body. That's like a couple hundred dollars, right? So, what, what yep. are you doing to keep costs down? It goes way deeper than that, in my opinion, because if it's foot brake only, you are, at least in my mind, somewhat limited 
as to what can be a competitive car. Like you can go too fast real quick to where it's very difficult to have a, a reasonable spot on the bottom. And I just feel like when you open it up to no box, like there's just a whole lot more options for racers like it's easy to chip it way down it's easy to have slow release and valve bodies and long throw buttons and things like that and suddenly your tube chassis door cars or your dragsters if they're allowed are competitive no box cars where it's not to say that they couldn't be competitive foot brake cars but it would take a little bit more ingenuity and a little yeah. bit more thinking to really make them competitive and i think it's easy in no box for those cars to be immediately competitive and then what happens is your average racer with their, you know, back half Nova that might have might be a ten thousand dollar race car to look at that tube chassis Grand Prix sitting there and say, well, that's what I need to win. Whereas oh, yeah. if it's foot brake only, like I just feel like it levels the playing field a little bit more and ultimately keeps those costs in check. Well, there's no doubt, uh, and this is not the the foot brake versus no box debate show, but uh, you know my my good buddies Alan Neff and Greg Dillman that that. Uh, manage the no box nationals you know they like to they like to pick at me a little bit about the differences and that it's not an advantage every time a foot brake racer has a double o light and wins around up there they want to tell me that it's just the same well anytime you can leave you take out some of the variables and you've got your right foot on the floor before you take off from the starting line and and you're letting go with your hand it's it's an advantage and the the packages will show it they're probably about ten thousandths better on average probably eight to ten thousandths on average so that does run some people out and i would be all for your foot brake only idea no offense to my no box friends but um i think that that would definitely gain some traction with people and maybe keep some guys interested um Again, that's this not that's not the the topic of the show. So I hate to get off on that rant. Yeah, without okay, we've talked a lot about like the idea standpoint of what could be done to make racing better. But let's focus now a little bit more. Like above all else, we're racers, and those of uh, those of you listening to this podcast, you're racers. What can we do better to make local bracket racing? get back on the right side of things to make it grow again well that's that's a good question i mean obviously um you know we need to make it a little more exciting for the people there and racing in front of people is exciting um whether you've been doing this a day or 40 years you, when you're racing in front of a lot of people it gets exciting so you know, we need to try to find ways to get spectators to the racetrack. I think, obviously, spectators turn into racers, too. So um, trying to find a way to get them in the stands, I, I, I believe, is a key factor, Luke. And I'm, you know, I don't know your opinion. but Yeah, no, I mean, I, I did several pieces on this, like videos on our, on our Luke Bogacki Motorsports Facebook page last year. And I agree, like, spectators are the missing ingredient here. And... Our races up here at I-57 Drag Strip are proof positive that you can get people to come watch a bracket race. Now, granted, we're in a unique position just geographically here because there's not a lot of competition for the entertainment dollar in southern Illinois. 
Um, so it's easier to get people out to, to watch a, a bracket race. But I'm just telling you, there that opportunity is there, and it falls every bit as much as us on racers as it does the track promoters to get people interested and get people involved. There are a number of things that we can do as racers, even some from as simple to telling your friends and coworkers that you race where they can see you race, how cool it is to come out there. From as simple as that to offering, you know, go to your track owner, track operator, and offer to set up a little display at the local parts store, the local gas station, you know, three hours before the race starts. Bring your car out there. Just shake people's hands. Tell them what you're doing, where to find them. I mean, if every racer could bring three people to the racetrack that aren't, you know, their family or normal crew members... That adds up quick, and what and just like you said, just getting some people to the racetrack to watch. Um, number one, like that, we got to do a good job them of making sure that they enjoy it, which just means interacting with them when they come through the pits. Don't act like you don't want them there. Sure, talk to them, tell them a little bit about your race car, make them feel welcome. But those people that come to a race, like if they like it, a they're going to come back, and b like. When you find something entertaining to do, most people don't go do something entertaining alone. They want to bring their friends. And inevitably, as you mentioned, spectators within our sport, it's so easy to actually get involved. Spectators tend to become racers at some level. That's why it's so important for tracks to have some type of introductory program, whether it's a trophy class or the the high school drags or whatever the case may be, to get those people out of the stands and, and and onto the racetrack. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with that more. Um, You know, trying to figure out a way to get those people involved and, you know, offer them uh, with your ticket. You you get to come in next Thursday and test and tune and let them know, yeah, you your Ford F-150, you can put it right here on the racetrack Thursday night for free with your spectator ticket tonight at Saturday night's race. And you get to come in and race or test and tune for free and just see how you like it and. I think that stuff goes a long way. And just you just talking about the local parts stores, putting free tickets at the local parts store. Um, guy comes in there and he's he's doing an oil change and he's got his Saturday afternoon wrapped up in that. But Saturday night, not much going on. I'll take a couple of those free tickets and go out to the drag strip. So they get in free. He wasn't coming anyway. Now he's in free and he's going to buy you know, $11 worth of nachos and corn dogs or whatever else you got. So I think just getting them there, uh, you know, really nets you a, a good return, whether they bought the ticket or not. Um, you know, racers getting involved. I think if I had a racetrack, I might try to figure out how to tie tickets to, you know, to the racers with your name or your number or whatever on the ticket printed. So you couldn't duplicate it and, you know, if you had every 50 tickets you got used up this year, then, you know, that's some kind of perk for you. Maybe free buyback, maybe go to the concession stand and get $10 worth of food or whatever. Your racers get invested in in another form of competition. If, mm. if that's happening at my track, I want more tickets used than anybody. So, you know, I'm, I'm telling people, come on out and... Use this ticket, you'll get in for $2 less, and, um, you know, you can help me, too. Come out there and root for me. So, you know, silly things, ladies' night, senior night, kids' night, whatever you want to do, 
you know, if a, if a female wins uh, January 24th, she gets an additional $100 or whatever. I, I think some competitive people in that fit those um, categories would come out and, and try to compete. So, you know, I, I think there's so many things a track owner can do, especially with the racer's help that would help increase the crowd not only on the track i mean not only off the track but on the track yeah but i don't want to just put the the onus all on the track owners by any means like to me it just comes down to not being afraid to promote yourself and promote the sport as a whole um now and i in saying that and this is something that that i talked about briefly in the interview with mr bader was i realized that a lot of you racers like racing is your release that's the time that you can get away from the nine to five and and do something that you enjoy and you don't necessarily want to tie up a lot of responsibility in in that like i get that but on a local level like it's gonna go away if we don't do something so we kind of have a responsibility to our sport and again like self-promotion in this day and age it may not be the most the thing that you're the most comfortable with but it is so easy just with the advent of social media to let people know that you race, where you're racing, when they can come see you racing. Because not only is it big and important in getting people out there, but it's key in getting them interested is to just be able to associate with someone. And all of us are not much different than all of those people at the gas station or all of those people at the parts store that might come out to the racetrack. Like, they're just like us. They're working people that kind of fit the same demographic for the most part that are at least casually interested in in race cars that would absolutely um, be able to associate with us and identify with us as racers. And whether they root for us or against us, like, that doesn't really matter as long as you give them a reason to root. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I'm one like I kind of would prefer that everybody like me. I think most people are the same way. But <laughs> there are people that approach this the other way. If everybody comes there to see you lose, they're still coming there. Like that's a good thing. Oh yeah. So the yeah. more that you can show, not necessarily that you have to be some outstanding personality, but just show people who you are and what you're doing. Like people gravitate to those type of stories. I think that was racers the vast majority of us are really easy to identify with. You just have to actually take the initiative to do that a little bit, make yourself identifiable. Yeah, and I think spectators in our world, Luke, are, are commonly surprised about how accessible the racers are. I mean, obviously, at the NHRA events, you can go up and, and kind of wait on your, your guy or your girl to come out of the trailer and get a few minutes with them. And But at our level, I mean, we're out there getting the car ready for the next round, just kind of hanging out with our buddies and people coming by and looking at the cars. They genuinely want to chat with you about it. I've always had one just like it, of course. You know, I had one just like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should have kept it, but it's still fun to interact with people that are genuinely interested in what you're doing on the racetrack. And I think the more accessible you are to to the fans, whether there's 10 of them or a thousand of them at the racetrack, then that gets them pulling for you, whether they know you or not. You know, they, they just kind of root for the guy that took a minute to talk to them. So uh, I think there's a lot of advantages to to chatting with them. First, you're you're helping the the sport in general and keeping those people interested in what we do. Plus, you're, you're getting some more fans for yourself. And 
Yeah, uh, and the, the argument that I always hear is, well, our sport is so complicated, and it is. Like, it's not simple for a first-time spectator to come out there and, and understand what's going on. But again, like, that's not really what's important. If they've got someone to identify with and someone to root for, then we're going to have an opportunity to explain to them what's going on as time goes on. Sure. That's got to be the hook, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm a contributor to the difficulty of understanding our sport uh, by the way that I announce. You know, I feel like I'm working with a group that gets it, that understands my language. But anytime I get an opportunity to be on the mic at the local track, I don't really change anything. And that's something I'm, I'm committed to working on when I, when I do get a hot stick at, at the local track. Um, this year or anytime in the future, I'm going to I'm going to try to do a better job as the announcer, or the part time, whatever, to to help them understand what's happening on the racetrack. Yeah, you know? no, I think that is crucially important at the local level. And it's got to be a fine line to walk in that you don't want to dumb it down too much for the racers. But at the same time, you want to explain what's going on to the, the novice or the first time or at least to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think everybody in the stands gets it when they look at the scoreboard and it lights up to, you know, basically want to try to help them understand what happened. So that's something I'm committed to. But just want to touch on one quick thing about I-57 drag strip that I, I think tracks are missing out on. You know, nope, not bragging here by any means, but, you know, I announce both millions, one in Vegas and one in Alabama, and I announce some really big races. I've announced a couple for you at I-57 Drag Strip, and it is the only place to date that I've ever given away chili cheese fries or lemonade or a T-shirt or chicken fingers. They do that type stuff all night. Even if it's a premier event at their facility, they're still doing it. And that's got to do nothing but help. Now, obviously, it's getting in the pocket a little bit of the promoter, but I, I still believe that it nets you a return and, and that people – appreciate that and they continue to come back uh, for hopes of winning something hearing their name called whatever and I, I think tracks are missing out on opportunity to to help fans get a little something for their time and, yeah, and just build money. up that relationship just like yep. they try to do with the racer absolutely you, if you like that wait till you see what we've got in store for this year's summer door <laughs> <laughs> do some cool stuff geared toward more toward the uh, the spectators than the racers so. let's go that's a, it's it's an impressive deal they got going up there and they do get the spectators <laughs> it is fun to be a part of and watch all right that's uh, enough of us gas bagging for one week we're gonna bring <laughs> in the professional like i said this uh is, is a interview that i actually recorded yesterday with uh, with bill bader um got to speak with him for a pretty extended period uh, earlier this week he is if you missed it earlier the president and co-owner of summit motorsports park which uh, in addition to being arguably the most recognizable facility race facility in the world it is also host to one of, if not the most successful and well-attended weekly bracket programs in the country. Uh, what they call it is the Edelbrock Super Series. So that's the main gist of what we wanted to talk to Bill about. He is an extremely intelligent man. He's very educated and also, I think more importantly, experienced in his opinions. And he's not the least bit afraid to share them. You want to make it in a song to do the Justin Lamb. Win a bunch of races and you do it with the fam. You do the Kevin Brandon, lay the smack across the land. Then you do the L ride and you...
come out like the world changed. We live and compete within a world of sportsman drag racing where races are often won or lost, and fortunes can be destroyed or made in thousands of a second. So attention to detail becomes more and more important as packages continue to get tighter and tighter. That's why I use the AirTech pressure monitoring system. The AirTech system is, at least in my research, the most precise and accurate tire gauge on the market today. I've seen, and I know Jared's seen, racers with tire gauges, expensive tire gauges at that, that can read inaccurately by up to a full pound. On higher powered cars, much less variance than that can lead to major problems. Problems that often lead racers to making a lot of changes to suspension, to tires, shocks, converter, the list goes on and on. And in the process of doing that, spending a lot of money simply because that tire gauge failed them. That's why I choose AirTech. It's a little bit more investment up front, but you get what you pay for. To learn more, visit AirTechPC.com. That's Air, A-I-R, Tech, T-E-K, P-C, as in personalcomputer.com. And then check out my video demonstration. It's on their homepage there. Again, Luke Bogacki Motorsports is proud to be an authorized AirTech dealer. You can call or message me for details and pricing. And if you've listened to our podcast before, you've heard us talk about racing RVs. You know, they've been a huge supporter of this podcast and of sportsman drag racing in general. You've heard us talk about the quality and selection that they offer and how Joe Fisher, the owner, is a racer himself. So, you know, he speaks our language and understands our needs. If you're in the market or even considering a new or new to you coach or trailer, I want to encourage you to visit RacingRVs.com and check out their current selection. Do you need an RV? They've got everything from new show hauler units priced near half a million dollars to used units priced well under a hundred grand. How about a stacker trailer? Racing RVs has the latest, greatest top of the line gold rush. You know, they've also got affordable used stackers priced under 35 grand. Racing RVs can help make your race car transportation dream a reality. Check them out at racingrvs.com or call them direct at 419-236-1328. Joining us now on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast is the president and co-owner of Summit Motorsports Park in Norwalk, Ohio, Mr. Bill Bader. Bill, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us. How are things in Northern Ohio today? Well, I'll tell you what, things in northern Ohio are, um, excluding the weather, things are wonderful. This time of year, we only see a couple of days of sunshine a month. So it is cold and wet and dreary now until about April. But everybody's doing well, and I appreciate you inviting me on your show. Absolutely. Glad to hear that. How's your father doing? Dad's doing well. Dad's doing well. Yeah. We just had our awards banquet this past weekend, and so we had an opportunity to reconnect with about 600 folks that attend our um, annual awards banquet each year, and he's home for that, and then he'll head back out west, and we'll probably see him at the national event. So he's doing well. Very good. Always good to hear that. Yeah. One of my, uh, well, both of you, but your father especially, one of my favorite people. So. Oh, thank you. I think it's appropriate, Bill, to, to have you on today. I've always joked, but obviously it's not really a joke, that anyone who 
purchases a racetrack and or takes on a management position within one like it should be a requirement that they spend two weeks with you guys at summit motorsports park in norwalk just to see how things are done you guys just you maximize resources you pay attention to detail you put an emphasis on customer service both racer and fan that at least in my experience is is unmatched what would be your biggest like piece of advice to the aspiring track owner operator let me back up. First of all, there was a day when the track owner was the wealthiest guy on property. That has long since passed. There are people, race teams, team owners, team managers, drivers in the pit area that by far and away exceed the wealth of ownership. So oftentimes what happens is you have a group of racers sitting in the pit area. They're disgruntled with cleanup time. They're disgruntled with the fact with run order. They're disgruntled with pit parking. They're disgruntled with the fact that the program can't be run more efficiently. So invariably what happens is one of these guys ends up buying a racetrack and they immediately take with them, I think, a bit of a racer bias. And as a result, they don't look at things necessarily as objectively as they need to. So I think anybody that buys one of these things, first of all, is completely insane. But (laughs) looking past that, I think they need to understand all the masters that they serve. I think, you know, you have guests, you have race teams, you have crew members, you have sponsors, you have a sanctioning body. We serve so many masters, and unfortunately, oftentimes you're talking about a husband and a wife that are going to attack this operation, so they're already understaffed, they're going to miss a lot of details, and they're going to focus on the big things, and unfortunately... Racers specifically focus on details. They focus on the little things oftentimes more than the big things. So a lot gets away from ownership. So I think, A, understanding that this is your home and you're inviting guests into your home. Secondly, you wear a lot of hats, you serve a lot of masters, and you need to understand what each one of those masters' hot buttons are, what their expectations are. You need to understand the world through their eyes. And then finally, guest service. Treat everybody well and don't be so rigid as to try to get everybody to march in line like 10 soldiers because these are people and and you're not herding cattle. And so consequently, you need to be a little flexible. You need to be accommodating. We've always said no is a four-letter word to our guests. So just treat people like you do on Christmas Day or when you invite them into your home. It's not rocket science, but oftentimes a lot of those things are hidden in plain sight. It's fitting that you say that because when I do get to make it up to your facility, it kind of feels like Christmas. So that's <laughs> that's, uh, that's applicable. And, and just to speak to your point, and I think I've been more vocal about this personally since, and obviously it's nothing in comparison to what you guys are doing, but since putting on a couple of, uh, of events as a, as a race promoter, it is amazing how quickly your perspective can change and how much appreciation you immediately get for what someone like you goes through on a daily basis. So that's what, that's just like you're saying, I encourage racers to just kind of keep in mind all of the various, um, people that you have to try to keep happy. So your racetrack has been in your family since 1974, I believe. I was reading up on this earlier and with you at the helm since 98. Today, our topic on the podcast that Jed and I have been talking about 
prior to our interview is kind of the growth of sportsman bracket racing at the local level. Now, at Norwalk or, or at Summit Motorsports Park, you guys have and have had one of the most successful weekly bracket programs in the country. Now, I know you have a lot of special events, but how many bracket race dates do you have like in a typical season? Our Edelbrock Super Series this year will be a 12-race series beginning the end of April and running through the first weekend in October. And over the course of those 12 events, like what is your typical turnout? With reasonable weather, we'll have 500 cars, and that includes Super Pro, Pro, Sportsman, Superbike, Stock, Junior Street, and then, of course, um, three junior classes, Novice, Intermediate, and Advanced. And everything in your local program is still quarter mile except for the juniors? Yes, everything is quarter mile except Junior Dragster. And Junior Street runs eighth mile as well. Talk to us a little bit about some of the things that allowed you to build and maintain that incredible racer base. You're talking about close to 100 cars in several of those classes, correct? Yeah, Super Pro uh, and Pro will be between 130 and 150 cars each. And then they break down Sportsman and then Superbike and Stock. And we're averaging close to 90 juniors as well on a weekly basis. I think, Luke, quite honestly, we never focused on prize money. We never focused on the reward. We always focused on keeping entry fees in line, keeping crew member fees low, and focusing on fun. This is, first and foremost, when this started all those years ago, this was supposed to be fun. This was like a hunting trip, a fishing trip. This was a camping weekend. This is guy time. And it somehow evolved into this ridiculous cost model where guys have six-figure race cars. They're traveling around in half a million dollar rigs. And it became very serious. And everybody has to chase. So guys are going faster and faster and faster. I mean, we have with 140 Super Pro cars, over half the field is running quicker than probably 740. So it's cars are getting fast and will continue to get faster. And so it has to be fun. At the end of the day, the pit area has to be fun. There has to be creature comfort features, i.e. nice bathrooms, a kid's playground, parking on a nice surface, a friendly staff, good food. You know, we offer fuel at the track. We offer tires and wheels at the track. We offer parts at the track. We offer a golf cart rental at the track. We try to be turnkey. We have, over the years, run shuttles into town. Um, And we've tried to, my dad identified several years ago that we would not be successful if only dad came to the track and mom and the kids stayed at home. We live in a resort area. We have high hotel prices in the summertime. So we put in all this free power in the pits. And that fed right into this idea where people could plug in and mom on a hot August day could go in the motor home and cool down. The kids could take a nap or they could play a game inside. We have hundreds of kids at a Edelbrock Super Series race and everybody watches everybody's kids. It's a community. What we built was a family. And now our programs evolved and developed. You know, most people don't realize this, but when my father bought IHRA, there were no divisions in IHRA. And my father created divisional series. And consequently, some of our racers started following IHRA. <laughs> and, and he was taking customers from me. So we developed the Edelbrock Super Series 
and created this extraordinary opportunity for all these things. And we brought some of those racers back because they could race for more in their backyard and they didn't have to travel all over the Midwest in order to do it. So, but our core, first of all, our bracket, our sportsman racing is our foundation. It feeds everything else. Number two, we treat them well, their family, their familiar faces. They see the same person at the head of staging. The same girl sells them tickets at the gate every week. The same faces. I mean, think about Luke going home and you're greeted at the door by a stranger. That immediately sets a negative tone like, what are you doing in my house? It's just good, basic, taking care of people, creating a fun atmosphere, being lighthearted on the PA, doing what you say you're going to do, being on time, being efficient, being equitable. It's amazing how many racetracks don't enforce rules consistently. You hear all the time about this well, he was a favorite, or there was favoritism, or there was this, or there was that. Everybody gets treated the same, whether you're John Force or John Smith. And it's just a formula that that it's a core competency that has been with us since 1974. And even though the facility's grown, we haven't deviated from that formula. Yeah, it's funny that you speak to that. It's like the despite how large i guess for lack of a better term your facility has become both in in physical space and stature like every time that i go there it still has that small track feel and as you said like i agree the attraction to norwalk is for them from a bracket racing standpoint is not necessarily the the money but at the same time like your edelbrock super series is almost i i think unprecedented in the amount of money that you guys pay out um yeah. for the for our listeners that aren't familiar with it the year-end points champion gets ten thousand dollars in both super pro and pro correct yep it's a total purse of fifty three thousand dollars we had a strong car count before that mm-hmm. that was in reaction to bill senior cannibalizing my pit area and me saying i got to get these guys back but yes it, it's a fifty three thousand one hundred dollar guaranteed point fund at the end of the year that Edelbrock underwrites. And then we have a cash contingency program. We paid out last year a little over 20 grand in contingency. We have a number of racer programs, races within races, so to speak, like the Super 64 and just some fun things and and some nice opportunities for guys. I am very concerned, Luke, about the cost associated with with campaigning what is now an average super pro car or pro car because the costs are, I never hear a racer say, gee, I'm going to slow down and, <laughs> and go back to having fun. You know, it's, I, I fight with neck collars and arm restraints, but a guy will put another 10 grand in his motor to go two tenths of a second quicker. And the other thing, though, that is interesting, racers are very smart. If you look at the investment they've made, I've never had an instance in recent time where I wasn't able to sit down and have a conversation and explain what we're trying to accomplish. They share with me what they're trying to accomplish, and then we work together. We're a small industry, and we need to be in lockstep, and we need to row in the same direction, and and we work on a lot of, we, we collaborate on a lot of projects with our racers. We try to give them PR and ink. I mean, if a racer says to me, hey, I'm trying to get a sponsor, and he wins a race, our PR person, Mary Lenzen, will write a press release in his hometown. I mean, it's, we really are, I mean, this is a joint effort. If our sport is ever going to become mainstream, we, we, we need to work together. I agree completely. Now, along that topic, like I'm completely in agreement with you as far as the, the costs of sportsman racing getting out of hand. 
But is there anything that we can do to combat that? Like, is that just a natural progression? Or I know you've thought about this like I have. What are, what are, go a little bit deeper into some of your thoughts. I think, to be very honest with you, Super Pro is probably too far gone. Mm-hmm. With all of the technology, it, the horse is out of the barn. At Norwalk, or at Summit Motorsports Park, we when we became... A number of years before we we've been with NHRA now. This is our 11th year. Prior to that, we were at a crossroads where we had a class above Super Pro called Comp Eliminator. It's not the Comp Eliminator that you understand at the NHRA level. It was a zero to 7.99 class, and it was for ultra fast sportsman cars, top sportsman cars, top dragster things like that. We discontinued that class because top sportsmen and top dragster and super class racing became so prevalent in our area. And a lot of those guys had a comp car and a super pro car. And at that time, we did not disallow dragsters in pro. And a lot of guys said, hey, I want to run my second car in pro. And thank God I didn't allow that. I made at that time pro a door car class only. We had a high time break. And we were able to, I mean, it's a, our pro is we don't allow delay boxes. We don't allow data recorders. We don't allow the sophisticated dashes that, that exist and come standard in cars today. We preserved the integrity of pro and pro is actually a larger class than super pro. So I think in pro, if you look at our template for pro, keep it simple Our pro racers are ultra competitive. They're some of the best in the country, and they're doing it with a trans brake and a dual line lock and and being able to hit the tree and and drive the finish line. In super pro, since so many of those cars also are a super class car, um, I mean, you see what's happening at the national event level with the speeds in super comp, super class, and super street. These guys are running and the technology that they're using and their mode of transportation. Um, (laughs) I mean, my God. So in Super Pro, you would almost have to just, in a perfect world, what I would do is I would, the time break would go from seven flat to 750, and I would slow cars down. Mm-hmm. And I think that in and of itself would save on a lot of service and, and work that these guys need to do. We don't allow downtrack throttle stops either. They can be used as a starting line launch control only. So I, I think in Super Pro, the only thing you can do is, is really slow the cars down. Um, as far as Pro, we've kept that in check by maintaining the integrity of an entry-level program, so to speak. Yeah, no, I agree with the template on Pro, and I think that's a little bit more, or I, not more, but I think that that's fairly universal in that in that type of category, especially with the rules that you've got in place. Obviously, if a racer wants to spend a little bit more money to have a nicer car, per se, then they're welcome to do that. But the need isn't there to feel like you have to invest in your operation in order to be competitive. You had mentioned kind of working in lockstep, so to speak, with some of your racers, um, bracket racers, even on the promotional side. And I'm a huge advocate of racers generating interest for the sport and obviously for their place within it. Obviously, with the events that you have in place, like you have a lot of events geared toward generating spectator interest and involvement, but I've always been of the belief that if the bracket racers work toward promoting the sport and, again, their involvement within it, that we could also enjoy significant spectator crowds at bracket events that could largely subsidize purses and 
you know, a, a kind of opposite the typical entry fee driven model. I don't know that I've ever actually attended a typical bracket race at Summit Motorsports Park, um, your Edelbrock Super Series, as you call it. Do you get much of a spectator crowd? We get uh, on a good Saturday with 500 cars, we're going to see 12 to 1400 spectators. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and keep in mind, because we have probably 12 to 15 big events ranging from the summit racing equipment, NHRA nationals to the blue suede cruise and which is a 72 and older street rad show and everything in between. We sit in a market where the circus can only come to town so many times a year. However, if, if I were sitting in a market that didn't have a national event, that didn't have a night under fire, that didn't have a cavalcade of stars, a shakedown, a Halloween classic that didn't have all of this programming, I think there are a number of things that that could be done. The reality of it is that this is a cool sport. It's an acceleration contest. It's comprised of really good middle class to upper class people. They're very sophisticated. We have things for all ages. The junior program is is incredible. The junior street program. These kids, I mean, everybody can play football, baseball, basketball, or run track. But not every kid can be a race car driver. So these kids sit in these classrooms in, in grade school and middle school uh, or even high school and, and they can say, hey, I go you know 90 miles an hour and 660 feet and I run a dragster. I think there's lots of opportunity from a youth marketing perspective and from an adult perspective, lots of cool bracket cars. Um, and I, I mean, if Ford, Chevy, Chrysler, American, import, exotic paint schemes, big mile an hour, if we could develop a, a template or a program where we could create this initiative that bring a buddy to the track on a bracket night, a lot of these guys are middle or upper management. And I shouldn't say guys, because there's a lot of women that are very successful in our sport. So I apologize for that. But a lot of racers now sit in white collar positions where they can make these decisions. I have one gentleman in particular who's an executive at Owens uh, Corning and, and he has a company day at the track and he introduces his peer group to what we do. And that's led to some good things. And so whether you work in a plant with 1500 people or whether you sit in a boardroom or anywhere in between the problem, Luke, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but a lot of guys just view themselves as race car drivers. Right. They don't view themselves as ambassadors of the sport. And so for every guy that or every racer that says, yeah, that sounds exciting, I would do that, there's going to be 100 that says, no, I just want to race my car. And that's the problem. Yeah, no, and to some extent I get that. Like for a lot of the people at the racetrack on a given Saturday night, that's their escape. That's their getaway from the day-to-day. So they don't necessarily want to make it more of a – Jobs, not the right word, but they don't want to in, in, entail any more responsibility there than has to be. But sure. yeah. the one other thing, kind of keeping along the topic of, of speaking directly to the racers here, like I mentioned before, having been on the other side of the pay window a little bit as an event promoter, like I know from from the track management standpoint, like. Bracket racers are kind of a pain in the bleep, right? I mean, like, <laughs> let me, let's be honest, you guys can swing open the gates for a, a, a test and tune or a, a graduator, specifically a, a special event, 
pack the stands and have no payout, you know, what? or maybe not necessarily yeah. pack the stands for a test and do a grudge race, but, and have like way less headache. I mean, in reality, as bracket racers, like we have high demands in comparison to those test and tune or grudge racers. Like we need the timing system to be in check and track prep and efficiency in the program. Like, and, and on top of all that, like we want to get paid when we win. Um, right. So I try to make folks kind of understand that, but speaking as a track operator, like what's your advice to racers in terms of just simply interacting with the track staff and officials when maybe things aren't perfect in their eyes? Well, I, I think a couple of things. First of all, approaching an official, um, screaming and hollering and ranting and raving is never a good thing. Now, our track crew has a lot of training in that area. I tell our track staff that race car drivers are athletes, no different than an athlete NFC or AFC championship game. Richard Sherman, a couple of years ago, when he gave that interview to Aaron Andrews, and he was screaming at her um, in that post-game interview uh, when he locked down on, uh, I don't remember which wide receiver, I think it was a Super Bowl game. And um, so... I mean, I've had racers that felt that something went wrong and they'll park at the finish line in the pit area and go on a dead run to the tower and, and they're just out of control. They're athletes and their adrenaline is pumping and, and time is, when you are inside a race car, time is altered. A second can be an hour long and a minute can be a second. Um, and and so, you know, when you're it's oftentimes a racer will say that tree was late. I sat there for a good 30 seconds. It wasn't 30 seconds or, uh, you know, so but that gets back to kind of track ownership 101. Understand oftentimes what racers are telling you is not a fabrication. It's what they really believe. I don't find that racers lie to me. What I find is they're impassioned. And they really believe what they're telling you because oftentimes I'll talk to them later and when they're calmer and their buddies have talked to them and they'll say, wow, I, you know, I really thought I saw it a certain way and I didn't. So I think, A, you know, you need to understand that drivers are athletes and you need to give them time to kind of say what they need to say, get it all out. And and then you just kind of scientifically linear, in a pragmatic, linear way go through and address it. I think, again, racers are very smart. You don't ever lie to them. You don't ever, one of the things I hate most is when a, a racer will come to the tower with an ET slip and then the race director or or the announcer or whomever will scurry off into a private room and have a discussion and then walk back and give the racer an outcome. What are you saying in the closed behind closed doors that you can't say in front of the racer? So at Summit Motorsports Park, we don't scurry off into a corner. Everything is completely transparent and upfront. And, and quite frankly, we're not perfect. So I had a race at the Halloween Classic where the starter zoned out and forgot to turn on auto start. And it was, I mean, it was a long time. And it was the same for both drivers. And the run stood. There is a human element in what we do. Like a racer can miss the tree. A starter can miss the tree. And when we make a mistake, I just tell them that. So I think from to communicate, first of all, from a bracket racing perspective, that's what built Summit Motorsports Park. And keep in mind, those 500 cars that come 12 times a year also feed a 600 plus car 10 Grand Nationals or a 500 plus car No Box Bonanza or a 1200 car Halloween Classic or bolster a cavalcade of stars or 
It's why we get 800 cars at the night under fire. Our brand events, Mopar, Pontiac, Ford are so big. What our success has been built on our bracket program. So our sportsmen, while on a, we spend more time in the office dealing with a 12 race Edelbrock Super Series and everything that that means than we do anything else. And from a profitability perspective as a standalone, we don't make a ton of money on a weekly bracket race. Mm -hmm. So, but when you add up all the other stuff, I'll see a racer in my pit area 20 times a year. So what's the value of a lifetime customer? I think what I would say to a racer, you are important. If the track owner is doing things the right way, you're critical to his long-term success. But understand that he's not trying to intentionally mess with you or, or pardon the expression, cheat you or screw you. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, there are human elements involved. Obviously, corrected altitude changes. Traction does go away at some point. Moisture moves in. We want to make it a science because you're winning and losing races by one ten thousandth of a second. But it is still an art, too, and there is still a human element. No doubt. That's a very good explanation. Switch gears just a little bit here, and then I'll let you go. I know you're a busy man. You were directly involved in arguably the biggest scandal in bracket racing history, like the Dirty Dozen incident of, what was that, 1999, somewhere in that area? I'm not here today to dig that up or rehash it, but I can't help but notice that despite being arguably the most recognizable racing facility in in the world and despite having an immense following for your own bracket program in this age of huge purse bracket races every other weekend you've never hosted like a mega big dollar event at summit motorsports park is that just is does that relate more to what we talked about earlier in trying to do what you can to cap the the unbelievable costs of racing or are those two events related? Like, is your experience with that dark period of the history at that level of the sport related to your resistance to putting on an event of that nature? No, the, the Dirty Dozen is mutually exclusive and has no bearing on why we don't host a mega money race. We've got the 10 Grand Nationals and the No Box Bonanza. Mm-hmm. I don't believe, Luke, to be very honest with you, those monster payouts I'll be very honest. Number one, I don't believe in that type of racing. And number two, I would sit there with a stomachache for three days and because everything has to be perfect. When you're talking about a guy who's 003, dead to, five thou package, and he's on the trailer because the guy next to him had a three thou package, his car wiggles or something doesn't seem right or, or issue A, B, C, or D, I put together a formula. I have a blueprint for the biggest money race of all time. And it would be guaranteed. I would never do anything that I would do or that our family would be connected with is always going to be a guaranteed purse. I think when a driver comes through the pits, he needs to know or she needs to know what he or she is racing for, period. I understand the scaling. I get it. And I'm not being critical of it. I'm just saying if I were going to do this race, it would be guaranteed. And that's not who we are. We're not you know, the organizations that do the all those big money races, that's not Summit Motorsports Park. It kind of just goes against our grain. You've come to the 10 Grand Nationals, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, what is it, 10 rounds, 11 rounds, some stupid thing, and you're racing all night. And I remember it was a well-known bracket racer, and I'm re- forgetting his name right now. And it was at 4 a.m., and he was down to the round of 32 cars or something. 
And I was walking through the staging lanes and he came up and put his arm around me and he said, this is about the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. I just want to lose so I can go to bed. And, and so we've always catered to the masses. We've never, you know, there are the haves and the have nots and, and we've built our reputation on catering to everybody, not just the haves. And we don't sell pit spaces. Everybody gets treated equally and maybe someday I'll do it. I've thought about doing it a couple of times. I thought about doing it actually this year and we just, the weather killed us, decimated our year last year and I just haven't had the guts to do it. But I just know that I would like to run the race primarily in daylight conditions. I just think if you're going to pay that kind of money, I would want as much in my favor because I do. At When we're running races, I am very concerned about all of those variables, both what can be controlled and what can't be controlled because I know the sophistication and the close margins that we're operating under. So I, I'm very conscientious of that. Our team is very conscientious of that. The dirty dozen, I'm just thankful we were able to eradicate that. But no, we it's done and in the past and I don't that has nothing to do with it. It's funny that you pitch it like that because like from a racer standpoint, obviously I go to most of those huge mega events that we're talking about. And I kind of agree. Well, A, number one, as a racer, like I would love for you to have something like that because I would go. Um, sure. And sure. I think you'd, and I, I think it would run as smoothly or, or better than anyone that I've ever been to. But from your standpoint, like trying to be in your shoes, like I see that side of it too, because even as a racer, I'll admit that while it gets my blood pumping to race for those types of purses... Like inherently, those races, the atmosphere is different. Like, I don't want to say it's not fun, but it's definitely a different intensity. And from a promoter standpoint, like same deal. I have been approached to put on events like that, and I just don't have any interest in it. Like, I have a hard time sleeping the week of our races that are like five grand and seventy five hundred dollars to win. If you took that times ten or times fifty, I I don't know. I I don't. It's just I'm with you. It's not me because it's. I think it would be very tense. Right. It would be very, very tense. Yeah, no doubt for everybody. So, And yep. I think it, people, racers don't realize how intense it is on the other side of it, trying to make everything go right, when, especially when there's that much on the line. So, Bill, I have, uh, I've kept you here long enough. Thank you so much for your time and insights. I think this will be incredible entertainment, not only for our, our listeners, but also a resource for both racers and track operators to look back on as a, a little bit of insight to the way that you guys think and operate in the way that things are done up at Summit Motorsports Park. So again, I just want to thank you for your time. I hope to uh, get back up there and see you guys this season, and I wish you and your family well. The same to you and yours. I have had, I started in this business when I was 10 years old. I'm going to be 50 in August. And I've had an opportunity to meet thousands of racers. And and I will say this, I I have always held you in the highest possible regard. I think you're a class act. You've always operated from a a position of honesty and integrity. You're one of the really good guys and good ambassadors in our sport. And I appreciate the opportunity. and, And maybe we can chat again in the future. Thank you, Bill. That means a lot to me. And again, thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Take care. This is my moment. Today's 
interview with Bill Bader has been brought to you by Alliance Racewear. You've heard us talk about Alliance Racewear before. Alliance has quickly become an industry leader in custom embroidered fire suits. I rely on Alliance to keep me safe and allow me to look great while promoting my marketing partners. You should too. Alliance Racewear's custom suits are sharp, they're affordable, and most important, they're safe. Learn more at AllianceRacewear.com or give them a call at 217-306-6184. All right, Big Jen, that wraps up episode 10. I want to say thank you to our sponsors. These are the folks that bring our podcast to you every week. That would be Alliance Racewear, Racing RVs, and AirTech Pressure Monitoring Systems. In addition, I want to say thank you to our guest, Bill Bader, for his incredible knowledge, insights, openness, and also thanks as always to PJ North for providing the tunes along with doing our intro. You can find PJ's work on iTunes. As you guys know, we plan to release a new podcast every week of the calendar year, so stay tuned for plenty more great content going forward. Absolutely, and to get the latest episode before your friends, be sure to subscribe to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast you get it on itunes stitcher and google play if you like what you hear rate and review the podcast that's how we move up in the rankings so more people can find us if you don't like what you hear let us know how we can deliver a better show and finally be sure to join the sportsman drag racing podcast fan page on facebook to interact and become part of the conversation this week can he achieve the dream Way alive, banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get it in. Attitude like I am already winning in. Foot breaking in anything, bottom ball before a 10. I'm rolling in the cutty, switching feet like Jerry Pennington. I was in my truck just to try my luck, spending money that I don't have, still can't get enough. We working nine to nine to keep the stream alive. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.